Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. We need a poor people's campaign. So we are building one. We gather today for a call to action. We gather here declaring it's time for a moral uprising all across America. We are in the same moral tradition of the prophets of Israel who challenged kings and rulers to stop legislating evil. We are in the same moral tradition of Jesus whose evangelical work was not being against gay people but being against poverty. We are in the same moral tradition of the Apache and other indigenous spiritual people who taught us to care and not, and not destroy and poison the air, water, and the land. We are in the same moral tradition of the abolitionists who knew if slavery was legal, it was still immoral and it had to be challenged. We are in the same moral tradition of the Reconstructionists who after the Civil War fought for equal protection under the law. We are in the same moral tradition as the social gospel movement who looked at poverty and corporate greed and asked, what would Jesus do? We are in the same moral tradition of those who fought for labor unions and decent wages and eight-hour workdays even when they were killed and hung in places like Chicago. We are in the same moral tradition as Cesar Chavez and MLK and Rabbi Heschel and Fannie Lou Hamer and Swana Cheney and Goodman and Rosa Parks and Unitarian and Muslims like Malcolm and gay people and social justice activists like Bayard Rushton. We stand in the same moral tradition that have always fought to help this nation be a little more a little more grounded in love, truth, and peace, and to come a little closer to being a more perfect union. This is who we are. Make no mistake, America, you've got to get a new lexicon for this. You won't be able to report this like you've normally reported it. We are black, we are white, we are brown, we are red, we are yellow, we are gay, we are straight, we are old, we are urban, we are rural, we are Jewish, we are Christian, we are Hindus, we are Muslim, we are people of faith, we are people not of faith, from Alaska to Alabama to the deep south in Mississippi to northern Maine, from California to the Carolinas, from the Midwest, from the Rush Belt to the Wheat Belt, we are the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for Amara revival and we won't be silent anymore and so today is about the people this is a different kind of rally we've not invited people here today to speak for the people we've invited the people to speak for themselves because I think it's time for a revolution so my name is Iracema Hernandez people call me Sima but you can call me your sister I stand here in solidarity with Kenya from California. She is the co-chair of California Poor People's Campaign. She could not be here, but she is watching. She is welcoming a new addition to her family. I'm here today to talk about what's being done to our families, to shine a light on the atrocities happening to our brothers and sisters crossing imaginary borders. I am a daughter of immigrants, immigrant my worker, my wor migrant workers who crossed the border for a better life and said it was a life of bondage. We work the tomato fields, apple, peach, and orange orchards. As a little girl, I remember picking tomatoes with my grandmother. 
as a plane flew over us, dumping pesticides. I lived in the shadows in fear for my mother and my abuelos that they would be deported for much of my life. Separating families is a practice that has been done a very, for a very long time to keep us in control and keep us scared. The capitalist system is deeply rooted in white supremacy. When our brothers and sisters are crossing imaginary borders, it's not because they want to. It is because they have to, to survive war-torn countries, economic and ecological devastation caused by capitalist and white supremacy ideology that bombs black and brown nations to exploit and profit from humanitarian crisis. We must learn from history to avoid repeating it. We must stop families from being separated before it happens, not after the fact when it's comfortable and convenient to talk about it. My brothers and sisters, we can all do something to help stop these atrocities by divesting from the system that, that contributes to this perpetual war economy. Take your money to credit unions and reevaluate your retirement and investment accounts. Use the capitalist system against it and break it. I was born in this country. I am a citizen and still I lived in fear. I was born into bondage. We were all born into bondage. But we can change that right now. To the people employed by the federal government just doing their job, do not let the job get in the way of your humanity. So this week we are traveling down to Texas to speak to one of my favorite activists and progressive candidates, Seema Hernandez. Now you might know Seema from her work with environmental justice, with criminal justice reform, and the Poor People's Campaign. But you might not know that she ran in the primary against Beto O'Rourke to take Ted Cruz's seat and did a phenomenal job and actually secured a large part of the vote with very little funding. So welcome Seema. Thank you for having me and allowing me the opportunity to talk with you and the rest of your, your awesome audience. Right on. I, I wanted to first go back and discuss the uh, run that you had against Beto O'Rourke in 2018. Uh, you ran for Ted Cruz's seat. You lost in the primo to Beto. Uh, you had very little money and you were actually able to secure, secure a large part of the vote based on how little money you went, how little much money you had. I couldn't get that out, which is actually a phenomenal um, statement about your campaign, I think. So when you ran against Beto, I think it's important people for, for people to re re realize at that moment, there was still this argument going around that Beta was actually a progressive. But when you actually looked at his record, you saw that he sided with the GOP 30% of the time when he voted, which is clearly not very progressive. And I think it's important to point out that this was in the El Paso area, which is a solidly blue district in Texas. So this is not a right-leaning district whatsoever. Um, you know, another example would be, I think, him taking money from the fossil fuel industry after signing the no fossil fuel money pledge. So what were some of the frustrations and experiences that you had during that campaign trying to fight that battle? The frustration began when I initially called a lot of my friends and said, I'm, I'm running for the United States Senate. One of them said to me, well, Beto O'Rourke is already running. I said, Beto who? Does it matter? Why do I have to stay out just because one person's already running? That doesn't make sense. That's not a democracy. And as I began to dig into who he was, or who he is, I saw that he's a congressional representative at the time, and he voted for several NDAAs. And I'm extremely anti-war, 
like super anti-war, like why don't we try diplomacy? Why are we funding a war that we can't even get ourselves out of? There's no exit plan. It's irresponsible. So there comes the endless war aspect, and there comes the fossil fuel money that we are going to war for to, to benefit the fossil fuel industry. And when this label came about that he's progressive, it's uh, it was rebranding, and I understood this. And this frustration and the struggle was trying to break through that narrative with the media blackout. So, obviously, he hired all the people that he needed to rebrand himself that were previously part of the Bernie Sanders campaign. And, you know, it was easy to frame him as a progressive because he was running against Ted Cruz, Satan himself. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and I, I get that. I do. But... At the same time, it's um, all these other media, independent media outlets, could allow the opportunity for other candidates who are unknown and otherwise will not be mentioned in the mainstream to give us the opportunity to to show what our platform is about. But I didn't get that kind of coverage, so it was difficult for our campaign to move through that narrative, and we did it through grassroots organizing, which is something that I I ended up developing early on in my lifetime. And I'm, I'm only 33. I'll be 34 in about a month or two. And uh, using my organizing skills and my communication skills and, you know, with, with people across Texas, I was able to get our message across and break the narrative. And people who have been doing this longer than I have in, in civil rights and human rights activism, they already knew his record before I did. So it was it was one easy to convey the message that he's not so progressive. It's just rebranding that he took on the um, fundraising um, foundation of Sanders. No PAC money, no lobbyist money, you know, things like that. But that alone doesn't make you progressive. It's having a strong, solid campaign that's unapologetically human, and you stand by the issues. And people who, who've already stood by and just voted because they wanted something better got tired and started digging and looking at congressional records. Still, I won. Like, you know what I mean? Like, even though I lost, we still got a huge portion of the state of Texas. And so, I, and I say I, because I thought myself, I don't think I should call him. I said, but let me see what the people think. Because, after all, I ran to represent them. I earned their votes. I earned their trust. What do they want me to do? And so, I put out a poll. And I just, you know, put some tools up and like, I don't want to meet with him, but what do you guys want me to do? And I reluctantly met with O'Rourke to discuss the platform and how we can win Texas from Ted Cruz. And I went there and I told him reluctantly, I'm here, but I don't want to be here. But I'm here because I owe it to the voters, to people who didn't get a chance to vote because they're DACA recipients, to people who didn't get a chance to vote because they were busy working because they're stuck in a cycle of poverty to come out here and talk with you since you want to win, you need to earn their vote too. And, you know, it took, it took on a whole different conversation that ended up giving us as a campaign, as, as the voting bloc for this platform leverage to, um, to catapult him into almost winning Texas, almost winning Texas. And after it was all said and done, you know, I wrote that endorsement letter because he said he would support Medicare for all if he was elected to U.S. Senate. 
And that was the condition of, of my endorsement. That was the condition of my endorsement. And he thanked um, he thanked me for my leadership and my, you know, how we influenced the election and how we influenced his campaign. And that was huge. That was huge. He legitimized me when everyone else was downplaying what what I was trying to do, what our platform represented, and what what the people voted for, that we ended up taking 25% of the vote. Which is actually pretty remarkable. Um, let's talk about where he's at now as a presidential candidate, because I feel as if he's moved a little bit back towards the right again. I don't see him as a presidential campaign and endorsing or supporting Medicare for all, but one of these sort of um, phony Medicare for all plans that are designed to still incorporate private insurance. Um, do you feel like his current presidential run has shifted back to the right? Do you think we sh- that he has a chance as a candidate and um, would you consider ever supporting him? I know you're a Bernie person, so I'm guessing no, but I thought I'd ask. <laughs> Well, no, you're absolutely right. I, I am a Bernie supporter. I was a Bernie supporter um, since the first time he ran for the presidency. I unfortunately found out about him a little too late in my lifetime, uh, but he had a trajectory of 40 years of being consistent on the message that he's now campaigning on. So I, I like consistency, and people trust consistency on the message, and he hasn't backed down. So when compared to someone like O'Rourke, which, again, like I said, the enforcement came on the condition that he would support Medicare for all in the U.S. Senate. And he almost won. Like, for, for the first time ever, he went up in the polls in about it, almost two years of him running for U.S. Senate. And after my endorsement, his, his numbers went up. So when he's running for president, why would you back away from that? Why? Why would you, when 70% of the country supports Medicare for all, why would you walk away from it? I, it, it baffles me. So I, I don't know, or for money, yes, for profit. Um, something interesting that Amy Klobuchar said yesterday during She the People, she says, I'm not going to be beholden to the insurance company. I'm like, you just are because you want to create the public option. The public option is for the insurance companies to, to have a strong foothold in our healthcare system. It's double speak. It's it's hypocrisy. So I I don't think that not just Dr. Wolf, but any other candidate who doesn't support Medicare for all and full heartedly supports it, um, and then doesn't back away from it, doesn't have a chance against Sanders. I, I don't I don't support this hypocrisy or the lies or the um, misleading of, of people because there's a lot riding for us. A lot of us are are literally living paycheck to paycheck. And we cannot afford to to continue living this way. I mean, they probably can, obviously. There are millionaires and billionaires, but we can't afford to live that way. Yeah, you know, I agree with that. Um, the only reason that motivates these folks in the face of that number, that 70% number, is corporate profiteering. And we see it time and time again within the ranks of the Democratic Party. Um, they're they're still trying to please two masters, and at some point they're going to realize that they can't. If they don't return to their working class roots, they will probably lose this election to Trump, in my opinion. Um, you worked in the well, healthcare absolutely. industry, yeah. So you worked in the healthcare industry, and you've seen firsthand um, how devastating our for profit um, 
plans are. So let's talk a little bit about that. What were some of the worst things that you have witnessed personally, personally in the for-profit system? I have witnessed uh, people denied surgeries that they needed, life-saving surgeries. I have witnessed doctors fighting for their patients, getting on the phone with the insurance company themselves when their staff can't get through, for them to say, my patient needs this. How are you denying them when I'm signing documents saying that this is medically necessary and you need a doctor to sign off on it? I have seen doctors pour their hearts and souls and nurses into patients doing everything they can only to be handicapped by the insurance industry because they won't approve life-saving measures. They won't approve medication. They won't approve treatments that are science-based and proven to be effective because they want to try other alternatives that are less expensive on the company than actually effective on the patient. Um, I myself have uh, witnessed people relapse um, into um, uh, drug, drug abuse, I guess, or addiction, I should say, because they're, they're not being accepted into uh, mental health facilities or given the proper prescriptions for depression. So they compensate using other supplements or other, other types of uh, self-medicating treatments like alcohol and, and really hardcore drugs. And these are all things that, that are, are a direct failure to our um, health insurance industry in America. So I've seen it. I felt it. I've been a patient myself where I, I don't have the means to afford um, my prescription costs or I don't have the means to afford my co-payments, let alone my premiums. So I haven't seen a doctor in years unless I go to one of the free clinics that I can go to and get on their program, which is like a gold card here in Harris County, where you get you get charged based on a sliding fee. So the most I will pay is $8, but you have to be approved. And that's a process in itself when you really need to see a doctor. So I've, I've, I've seen it, I've experienced it. I, I've held people's hands as they pass away. And I remember their faces, I remember their names, I remember their families. It's not something you can get over. And it's not something that should continue. That, that's an injustice. It's inhumane. And it's immoral to deny people health insurance or health care coverage. Yeah, I agree, Seema. It is, it is insanely immoral. That's, that's the basis for health care as a right, not a privilege. And, you know, and on top of that, what we do is not only immoral, it's economically inefficient. We spend three times, four times more than some other countries do that have universal single-payer programs. So, you know, even if the, the moral argument, if you're such a demented person that the moral argument doesn't compel you, the economic one should, in my opinion. Uh, so, which is, I think, why we have that 70% support with voters. Yet the uh, American Congress still doesn't seem to get it because they're still, again, like I said earlier, they're serving two masters, Um but hopefully we'll see that change this election cycle. I, I think it's starting to. Uh, you organized for the Poor People's Campaign. I wanted to talk with you about uh, some, of, some of the most important aspects of their platform. Um, in your opinion, what is their main focus and what, what future things are they going to be working on? Well, I was the 
co-chair for the Texas for People's Campaign, which is part of a part of a broader coalition with a, on a national level. And I organized statewide, and I helped to organize several shutdowns and uh, train for civil disobedience um, here in Houston and in Austin and in Dallas with really great people that trained me <laughs> that was able to pass that message along um, about the systemic racism, militarization, economic, economic injustice, the um, ecological devastation that's happening in our country, the income inequality. But, you know, there, there's a lot of factors that go into what the Poor People's Campaign is. But the main, the main focus is uniting people, intersectionality from all parts of life, from all walks of life. It doesn't matter what color you are, what religion you practice, how much money you make. Um, when, when we unite on, on the issue of equality and justice and with the premise of love, like the, at the core of it all, love for humanity, love for each other, that we want better for each other, not just ourselves. Ourselves is, is a, a very selfish. But as a people, that, that was important. And that's dangerous to the political establishment. That's dangerous to the status quo. So it's a matter of organizing and getting that message across. But here in Texas, our main focus, and I remember this because I ended up getting arrested here in, in Texas, uh, at the state capitol for shutting down the road commissioner's building, going up to um, Kelsey Warren's office and giving him a list of demands on one of the the moral 40 days of, of moral action with the Poor People's Campaign last summer. And we ended up shutting down the building and we ended up getting arrested. And it's because, you know, they issued the oil and gas permits and they are fracking and they're putting oil pipelines through our neighborhoods, through cities. My backyard, you know, it, it was already there, but what happens when it explodes? We're, we're littered all over the place here in Texas with oil pipelines or natural gas pipelines. You never see a, a water pipeline trying to get water from one place to, to a drought area. And, like, you know how effective that would be for humanity, for our crops. For, for, you know, local farm agriculture, um, just in areas where there's drought or there's wildfires, how awesome it would be to turn on that pipe and watch water come out to help instead of a line breaking and it's oil and it, it hurts our, our environment. And we specifically picked the railroad commissioner's office because of, of big oil and fossil fuel and how it impacts our neighborhood. Because I live in Pasadena. And in Pasadena, we have oil refineries from Shell, ExxonMobil, Marathon, the Philip 66. We have, um, you know, all these fossil fuel industry and chemical industry. The um, uh, fertilizer company is just, a, you know, a few miles away. So we live in, in, a, in a hub of, of oil. And we see how it disproportionately affects communities of color because they're put in communities of color. And our area is considered low income. And um, that, again, affects our health and it affects our education. It affects our ability to make a living wage. And I said, this is this is the epicenter. Like, the fossil fuel industry is at the center of why we are the way we are in, in the state of Texas. 
there's no regulation, so they can pollute and profit on multiple facets. Our our tax money is subsidizing these fossil fuel industries to invade our communities to to um, poison us, and then we don't have health care. We don't have the means to um, to pay for it because we're stuck in low-income, dead-end jobs that don't offer benefits. And then we, we live in a right-to-work state, in a right-to-work state, which is massive voter suppression. So we were organizing around voter suppression or the right to vote and the right to unionize in the state of Texas. And it, it's, it's such a massive state and it's such a huge platform to take on um, after my, my campaign was over, take, taking on my, my, my platform, which is eerily similar to the particles campaign platform, which I didn't notice until I got involved doing it at the state level with, with, uh, which is a strong Republican hold for Trump and his administration and his agenda was something that, you know, I, I, I dedicated as well as other people dedicated to, to do this for the long haul. And, um, it was, it was great to organize, but what we need to continue doing is organizing, training people for civil disobedience. Petitions won't help. Elections only work if people are allowed to vote, and those voter suppression laws are removed. Those barriers to exercising our civil liberties are removed. Uh, you know, so Seema, you're right that, that there is a connection between environmental justice and uh, civil rights, because generally speaking, not just in Texas, but across the country, you will see a lot of these chemical companies and fossil fuel companies set up shop in poor uh, neighborhoods where there's a large minority population, because clearly the gentrified wealthy areas won't allow it due to the um, toxicity that, that comes with that. You know, and here in California, we have uh, the city of Richmond that was at one time a stronghold for Chevron. That's where they were uh, quartered. But we had a mayor named Gail McLaughlin uh, who came in and really took Chevron on, had some lawsuits and a bunch of other things that occurred. And she was able to tackle that. So when there's political will, you can change it, but it's going to take a lot of political will. And it's a hard fight because these companies have a tremendous amount of money to um to fight you back with, and they will fight you back. But specifically, you're by uh, where the Deer Park fire was, which made um, headlines locally, I know, but didn't really get a lot of press in the by the national media for some reason. It should have, because I think this is a really important, important occurrence. So um, just for our listeners that aren't clear about the Deer Park fire, this was a fire that was at a chemical storage facility that burned for several days. And if you uh, were following Seema on Twitter, you saw her because she was really close to this area. She was in the proximity of where the toxic chemical uh, fumes were coming. You would see that they were sequestering people to their homes. They were closing schools, um, et cetera, et cetera. So fire at a chemical plant outside of Houston has been raging now for two days, going into its third day, creating an enormous plume of smoke spreading for miles. Firefighters are working hard to wrestle it under control. ABC's Marcy Gonzalez is in Deer Park, Texas with the latest. Good morning, Marcy. George, good morning. And those flames are really flaring up here right now. Officials tell us, though, even this close, the air is still safe to breathe. Still, they are keeping a very close watch from here to Houston because that could change quickly. This morning, that thick cloud of black smoke hanging over Deer Park, Texas, as a raging fire burns out of control at this chemical plant. Three of our tanks are still on fire, and three 
are in intermittent fires, so they flare up and then they go down. Six tanks now burning filled with chemicals used to make gasoline, solvents and glues. City officials closely monitoring conditions say testing shows the air is safe to breathe, but those who live nearby are concerned. Last night was really bad. Hard to breathe a little bit, but you know, we just stayed inside. Some even finding debris from the fire in their yards. They look almost like a, a lump of charcoal. And while schools are set to reopen today, some environmentalists say the toxic chemicals streaming into the air could become a threat to people living in the area at any time. By looking behind me, you can tell that this is not normal. This is not fine. The only thing that's preventing this from being a, a major catastrophe is favorable weather conditions. Walk us through, Seema, your personal experiences surrounding Deer Park, because I think it's a really good um, story about how when these chemical companies and these fossil com companies and these fossil fuel companies go unchecked, this is what happens. They self-regulate, they don't maintain their facilities, and then we end up with an, uh, just a disaster. Well, just to be clear, I, I live really close proximity to Deer Park. I live in Pasadena, but my kids go to Deer Park School because we're zoned to the school district. And I live right in the intersection of Beltway 8 and 225, which from Beltway 8 to the location is another maybe two or three miles driving distance. I saw the plume around 8 o'clock, 8.30ish in the morning on a Sunday. And the news media reports, reports that came. So there's this huge gap of, of hours where nobody's notified. There is no alert for a shelter in place, so the sirens are not going off, whereas before they would go off every week on Thursday for testing purposes to make sure they work. So Sunday morning, it did not come off. I come back. It's still on. My mind thought it was a flare because refineries have flares and they go off within the hour. But I come back, and it's still going on. I pick up my kids. We go to Austin because I have a campaign you know, stop in Austin to just organize up there. And I come back at 1130 at night on Sunday and it's still going on. And the father of my kids called me and he says, Hey, uh, uh, what are you guys doing? Are you guys going to stay? I'm like, what are you talking about? Like that fire that's going on. It's, it's at a storage facility and you guys are more than welcome to stay at, at my house. And I said, not a problem. And, um, I packed up my kids within 30 minutes. I took everything that they needed and took them over to, their, to his house. But before I left, I stopped at, at, at their school in the parking lot and took like a maybe 50-second video. And it looked like the opening to hell. You can see the ominous red sky and this big dark plume hovering over us in our entire you know, north side of Pasadena. And it's just a huge trail. And it was awful. It was disgusting. And it was toxic. You can smell it. I told the kids, we're going, we're leaving. It didn't matter where you moved in the north side of Pasadena. There was still a plume over us. But there was no shelter in place um, for quite some time in Pasadena. It was only in Deer Park. And school got canceled on Monday. Tuesday, they, the kids got called back to school saying everything was fine. And uh, Wednesday, we got together with 
different organizations as part of a broader coalition, I was called to come in and because uh, I have, you know, some background in organizing and I said that I'm still a candidate, but I'm not going to say I'm a candidate because right now I'm not a candidate. Right now I'm a mom. Right now I'm a, I'm a resident who lives here. I'm, I'm someone who is deeply concerned and who is pissed in hell. And so we were organizing as part of a broader coalition against misinformation coming out of ITC. And the information was then being sent to our newly elected officials for the county. So in this process, we found out that, one, this company, ITC, which is Intercontinental Terminal uh, Company, where they store different additives and chemicals to inside the the petrochemical industry or pharmaceutical industry, and it's stored there. It had had a bunch of benzene. And we find out that even though the plume of smoke went in a different direction because of the wind, the benzene levels in our neighborhoods were over a thousand parts per billion. A thousand parts per billion. And the benzene, the air detectors, the monitors went offline as the benzene levels were spiking. So we did not know how much toxicity was in the air and come to find out later you can taste it because there's a sweetness in the air because benzene does it's colorless and it's odorless and they had to add something to it it's kind of sweet and my kids along with thousands of other kids ended up going to school not just in Pasadena in Deer Park in Channel 5 Manchester Houston ISD everywhere this plume was unapologetic about where it went because it just went where the wind blew. And as one of the activists said, air has no borders. It's free. It just goes. And that sent shells down my, down my spine because she's absolutely right. Why is there only a shelter in place being called in Deer Park? Why isn't a shelter in place being called in Pasadena, Texas? We organized uh, a press release, we called the media, we ended up organizing three town halls in a matter of 72 hours. And people showed up. Our county officials showed up. Our uh, federal congressional representatives showed up. And those who couldn't sent their representatives to take notes on the serious matter that was happening. Sheila Jackson Lee showed up. Um, I called a few friends of mine that did me a favor or two to come explain what what the phone was about, what kind of assistance they provided to the city of Deer Park, um, you know, what we could have done better. Because, you know, we can sit here and point fingers, but when you find out that there's no infrastructure set in place for an emergency preparedness plan, this is the opportunity to learn. This is the opportunity to never let this happen again. And, I mean, there's just so many moving parts to this. What enraged me the most was the fact that the air monitors were offline. We were exposed to benzene. There is no massive alert system to let us know, like the Amber Alert. There should be one for air monitors, for air quality. There should be one whenever there's an explosion, a system set in place to notify not just Deer Park, or, you know, the specific area it affects. It affects people downstream because we're at the port of Houston and it, you know, it goes into the Houston, 
through the ship channel into the Gulf of Mexico. So we're talking it affecting a different industry, a different economy, different people downstream. Um, we we need something that will one immediately activate emergency response, um, triage countywide or statewide, because God forbid there is an explosion, we need all hands on deck and have the ability to go in there and know how to retrieve people, rescue people, and assess the damage, remediate, pretty much anything you can think of when you work in a level one trauma center, you're ready for anything and everything. Like all this went through my mind because of that medical experience. Like what happens if we have a 9-11 incident at the Houston Ship Channel where there's a bunch of oil and it would literally wipe out our region if, it, if something happens? Right. That's dangerous. None of that is set in place. There is no protocol ever. So when we set up the ITC town halls, we took that information. We even did a health a healthcare questionnaire for people who, who attended the ITC fire. We provided legal assistance. We provided people with uh, representation if they were um, undocumented. We provided people that have healthcare knowledge and experience to give people information on what to look for, what kind of services that you need to to get and testing. And I had brought up the fact that some of us don't have health insurance. We can't go to our doctors. And so because of that, our county commissioner opened up the lines for anyone who was affected by ITC, go to our doctors, go to our county facility. You don't have to have a gold card to see our doctors. We'll take care of it. That was a huge step. That was a huge step. And had I not mentioned that during a press conference, oh, nothing would have happened. Because it's, these are things you don't think about. And so when I, I was called by a friend of mine that said, you did this, I said, what did I do? Like, you mobilized the commissioners to get their act together to provide health care for people who were impacted. And the county commissioner said, it doesn't matter if you are undocumented. It doesn't matter if you don't have money. You come to the facilities and we will make sure that you get taken care of because it's important to document everything that happened and that you get healthcare treatment as possible. Establish a baseline to see, you know, where your healthcare, where your health is compromised, where it changes to make sure that we hold these, these, these uh, companies accountable for what they did to us. He took this issue very seriously and I'm, I'm glad to one call him my friend. I'm glad I have voted for him. And I'm glad our county commissioner, Adrian Garcia, was listening to what was going on. And our county our county judge, Lena Hidalgo, which she's 27 years old. She's the youngest elected official in charge of one of the biggest counties in the state of Texas, the largest populated county in, in the country, basically, of, um, of Houston, the most diverse city. And they're listening. They care. And that, to me, was a huge takeaway, but we still have a lot of work to do on the state level because the TCEQ, which is the Texas Environmental Quality Agency, they dropped the ball. Um, is there a lot of regulatory capture within the state in regards to the oil industry, meaning are there regulators that work for the state of Texas in various positions that used to be employed by any of these chemical and or fuel, fossil fuel companies? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Shocked. <laughs> we 
Well, what we found out is the TCEQ, Texas Environmental Quality Agency, is a regulatory board who is um, is filled with people that the governor appoints. So the governor appoints these people, and they just happen to be people with industry. They just happen to be people who donate money to his campaign. So <laughs> it, they they essentially are letting the fossil fuel industry regulate itself. And there there's instances where they are fined um, maybe once or twice, $75,000, continue on, business as usual, exactly. And then when something like this happens, don't be surprised when they're doing the bare minimum and you're not reprimanding them for not doing more to ensure the safety of the communities. Because just, and I know maybe your your listeners know this or they don't know this, but every corporation, specifically the fossil fuel industry, has projected how much they're going to end up paying in fines. Like this is calculated every year. They know more or less how much they're going to settle out of court, and they compare it to how many billions of dollars you're going to get paid, to the military contracts that they get from the government, to the subsidies that they get from the government, from our taxpayer money. And they calculate all of this, all the expenses, and they, they put in like a risk analysis, a budget for how much we might pay if this incident were to happen. We're covered. We're covered. Yeah, I know you're right. They they run an actuarial model that basically tells them if the profits are good enough, they're going to keep you know circumventing the law because the fine that they pay is so little that it doesn't make a difference to their profits. So it's pretty screwed up. Um, here's where we are. Now, speaking of, was was the, uh, in, in relationship to Deer Park, was there any fines levied? No, there actually was actually still an investigation and okay. the area is an active zone. Okay, so it's so still, still ongoing. Okay. Unbelievable. Well, it's still ongoing because, you know, as much water and um, foam was put into the facility, the the wall breached, and then all those toxic chemicals were running off into the Houston Share oh, Channel, which geez. then ran off into the Gulf of Mexico to Galveston Bay, Galveston Beach. Oh my God! And so it's a still ongoing environmental ecological disaster mm-hmm. that is going to affect millions of people, millions of you know of of um, of, of area in the ocean. Yeah. It's it's disgusting. It, it's ridiculous that it's taking this long. And when we went to the to the hearing in Austin at the Capitol for ITC, to sit there and hear and, and what was going on, it's like, are you going to put this in legislation? This is an emergency. That's happening. Yeah. We need immediate oversight. We can't just put a lawsuit together and allow someone like Ken Paxton, who he, he himself is under federal investigation, right. um, to to uh, leave this lawsuit when he is the whole fossil fuel industry. We need someone else to, to take on this case besides him because that's who, that's who is our attorney general. We don't expect any immediate justice. But I know several people, including myself, who have filed a lawsuit against ITC for what they did. And I myself have... I'm trying to recruit an environmental justice lawyer to go after the mayor of Pasadena, Jeff Wagner. He's my mayor. Because during during one of the ITC town halls that we had here in Pasadena, one of our city council members, um, Sammy Casados, 
he went on public record and it's recorded, it was live streamed, that he called the mayor and asked him to put a shelter in place. The mayor said no. Sonny Casado's council member, Sonny Casado said, can you call a shelter in place for my district? He said no. I want to give you a little bit of background on, on Sonny Casado's. Council member Sonny Casado's of Pasadena. He works for the petrochemical industry. He knows the ins and outs of the petrochemical industry and the chemicals that are being held there. So when someone who works in the industry is telling you, imploring with you, call a shelter in place, and you tell him no, you are exercising negligence, willful negligence. It's someone who knows what these petrochemical industries do, what they hold, and how dangerous these chemicals are. So he said no. So if any of your listeners want to take this on, you know, just give me a call. Drop me a message on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I need a lawyer to take on this mayor who is beholden to the fossil fuel industry, who is supposed to be representing the people of Pasadena. Right. But instead, he took a different approach and now is defending himself. And now he's walking around with bodyguards. He's walking around with bodyguards. <laughs> this man has had me taken out of his office, who refused to meet with me. Wow. Because we dare challenge the mayor right. on Senate Bill 4, which is an, an immigration bill in the state of Texas that was targeting people of color and asking them for their citizenship. So I know I'm I'm not in a place with the mayor. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like it's a good thing, though. (laughs) I know. I'm I'm okay with that. Exactly. Um, Speaking of immigration, I wanted to ask you, I know you're the daughter of immigrants yourself, um, and obviously we've had an escalation under the Trump administration of the way um, immigrants are being treated. Uh, I personally think that the Department of Homeland Security should have never been created. I don't think ICE should exist. Um, ICE is just sort of militarized as a, as a lack of a better word, uh, operations that were already being handled by other organizations. And I think they're, I mean, it's just the level of combat, combativeness that, that, uh, is, now occurring is just very disturbing to me. But having said that, clearly Trump has made it worse. Um, he has employed at the Department of Homeland Security um, several ex-folks uh, that are associated with John Tanton, which is the FAIR organization, uh, amongst others, actually. He's got about seven or eight different organizations. But he's basically uh, a nativist or uh, a white separatist. I would I would go as far as to say he's you know a white supremacist, but he's very careful in the way he words his his speech and doctrines. But he does have a long history of supporting eugenics and a host of other things. But it's always been a policy goal of his and all of his organizations to have zero immigration. And we're not just talking about illegal immigration; we're talking about immigration. Period. So now the reason I think this is important is because he's now um, has within the ranks of his administration several ex-FAIR employees, including Julie Kirshner, who is now being considered to head, head up DHS. She's currently the ombudsman. But if she gets this promotion, she'll be in charge of all that. So we literally are going to have somebody in charge of immigration who hates immigrants. I don't I don't know how else you put this. And it's dangerous. Um, so what are your thoughts on a how we got to this place and b what can we do about it uh, because i think it's urgent 
well, one, we, we got to this place because of the previous administration raising a loaded gun with an unlimited amount of yeah. bullets on the I, table. 100% I agree. I 100% agree with you on that, Seema. Yeah, and, you know, the excuse could be, oh, well, we didn't have control of the House or the Senate. Well, let me tell you, Trump had control of both up until recently. And now we have the majority in the House, and he can write executive orders, whatever. So where were you whenever you were making up the excuse? You could have written an executive order until you turned out, until you know, the, the House act together until the Senate got its act together to prioritize, you know, DACA recipients, to prioritize a pathway to citizenship and actually establish what that looks like instead of just giving once empty word salads every chance you got. One of the um, the things that people don't know about immigration um, is that people who are coming into this country are being treated as enemy combatants after 9-11. That's what they're being treated as. So when they're charged and separated, they are even holding them in, in um, what do you call it? In, in the, um, but they can be held without a trial because of an executive order that Obama put out during his administration. Not one more is the message being sent outside Los Angeles City Hall. Protesters and civil rights groups have gathered to demand that President Barack Obama use his executive powers to stop all deportations. President Obama's rhetoric has been, you could define it as pro-friendly to immigrants or pro-immigrant, but in reality, his policies has been nothing short of a disaster to the immigrant community. Many of the protesters say they supported the president during both elections. But they say two million deportations is too many to ignore. For all those people that are deported, they leave somebody behind, whether it be in their uh, nation of origin or in the U.S. Protesters are also upset that President Obama has done nothing about the increased border enforcement that has led to countless arrests. Now this administration is using it, and it's weaponizing what the Obama administration did previously. So how we got to this place was under a Democratic presidency. But right now it's being ramped up and it's, it's destructive, it's immoral, it's illegal on so many levels. I believe that this is an impeachable offense. When someone like, well, when Trump says that we need to get rid of immigration courts, we need to get rid of these judges, you are going up against the Constitution that establishes the judicial branch. You're getting things, getting rid of things that are there to protect people, not to protect. You're circumventing the, the Constitution, and that in itself is treason. It's a violation of the Constitution. Right. And I also feel like I need to mention that one of the things that FAIR has been supportive of is modifying the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment has everything to do with birthright. So FAIR, the organization that Julie Kirshner headed uh, for eight or nine years as the executive director thinks that we should modify the 14th Amendment and get rid of birthright citizenship. So this is this is how extreme these folks are. Well, there's a handbook that ICE has yeah, on how to strip people away from the citizenship. Now, this is going to be exercised if it's not already exercised under the Trump administration. It's detrimental. It's disgusting that this is happening in this country, and it, I'm not surprised that it is, because not long after 9-11, um, people in my family were, were taken. They were deported. I haven't seen them since. They will talk on the phone, but 
I haven't seen them since. And how they were treated is awful. How uh, how children are being separated now is awful. It's disgusting. And now we have a house, a democratic house, that is not acting on this. They are just using us. And I say us because I am a daughter of immigrants. I still consider myself um, someone who has deep roots with, with my heritage and um, my culture. And they're, they're using us as a prop when it's politically convenient to talk about immigration issues, but then they're nowhere to be found when we really need them. Like how how can how can we stay silent when when atrocities are being are, are happening at our borders and then you don't draw a direct correlation to how your vote in Congress affected that when you vote for the NBA you vote for the overmilitarization and funding to keep military operations in different countries destabilizing them overthrowing regimes they're destabilizing people that they can't live there anymore and human instinct tells you you got to get the hell out of there to survive. It's survival of the fittest, and everyone wants to survive. So they flee. They leave. Where do we go? Well, let's see. Is America bombing their own country? Is America bombing their own country? No. So they come here. You know, and can so we then talk about that for a second? Because this is, see, sure. what you're saying right now is so salient to me, because I think it's the aspect of the conversation that never gets fucking discussed, pardon my French, or don't. The reason folks mm-hmm. are coming to our country is because of our actions in their countries. We have time right. and time again gone into Central American countries, South uh, South American countries even. We have supported right-wing dictators and overturned democratically elected governments because they were leftists and because they were leftists, they were threatening to our business interests. And that's what this is about mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So I find it, I find the whole situation even worse because of this reason. We've created these refugees with our actions. And now we are literally refusing to deal with the consequences of what we did. And the solution for Trump is build the wall. Yeah. And which is that like, to me, oh it's not, not taking responsibility. You want to build a wall to what? Yeah. To shield the people from the truth of what we've been doing for decades? Exactly. For centuries? Exactly. No, that's not how it works. Yeah. We, we bomb their countries. Let's say we as a country, our government bombed their countries, and now they're coming here. Goddamn. Yeah. God you damn. want to talk about peace and diplomacy and, you know, giving freedom to people to give them the freedom to that's seek right. asylum without being caged, separated, killed, denied health care, raped, molested, abused, you know, tossed away. These are things that are happening every single day in our country with our undocumented immigrants, the most vulnerable population. Once in the country, but people coming in here, it's disgusting. It is. something that I myself will and have taken a, a personal issue with. And... I will stand up and fight back every fucking time. I have friends, dear friends of mine, and I see I dropped the next bomb. <laughs> I dropped the next bomb. That's okay. Um, friends that are, are doctor recipients, students that have come up to me in tears, yeah. saying to me that you are one who I believe will fight for me because you care, because you're genuine in your message. And they are in tears, and I am brought to tears when I see this. 
and I take that with me. Mm-hmm. One, because it's something that, that when I need to be reminded of every day that this is happening, not that I need reminding, but it's good to know that I have to use my pulpit and yeah. continue on this message, not just through words, but through action. And I'm tired of people saying, you know, we need representatives that will listen. Yes, but we also need representatives that will take action. Yeah. Not the kind of action that's detrimental, but the kind of action that demonstrates that our words were more than just words. You know, indeed. And I think I think the other part of the conversation too, Seema, is that they're very selective over what type of immigration they have a problem with. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like I need to note that if you're an immigrant from a northern European country, that it's a totally different conversation. Nobody says boo or gives a shit. I mean, I, I too, believe it or not, am the daughter of immigrants. My family's from Sweden. I'm a firstborn American, but... <laughs> I don't see them going after my people or me. So the, the the bottom line is it absolutely is racially motivated. And anyone that's still in denial over that needs to check in with themselves. Well, I mean, they need to check in with their, with their own type of privilege, whatever that may be. Exactly. Because because racism exists in, in every culture, in every ethnicity, in every religion. Yeah. It's usually typically tied to wealth. Well, that's well, exactly it. Tied to the color of your skin. Right. You know, and that's the other side and of the you, equation. When you see these guys that are like, uh, you know, in some of these Central American countries and even Venezuela currently, a lot of the folks that are siding with regime change are very wealthy. And there's definitely a conversation to be had about wealth and inequality in these countries and why a Venezuelan who is very wealthy would be very right wing because they're protecting their wealth. So of course they're going to assign. It becomes a class issue. It becomes. Yeah. So these things are definitely married. Absolutely. I I know that I'm, I'm the brownest person in my family and I'm, I'm not that brown, but when I was younger, I was really brown. Um, (laughs) Really dark complexed. And my, my grandmother used to, used to call me uh, a Seminole Indian because we lived mm-hmm. in Florida at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, playing football and basketball and soccer and, and uh, softball cross country, I was always out in the sun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and my grandparents and my mother were always out in the sun because they worked in the stove. And right. when I was little, you know, my, my mother would take me and my brother and my sister and take us out there to, to work the fields. We weren't initially there to work the fields. Mm-hmm. We were just there because we didn't have childcare. Mm. And I myself would get out of the truck and I would go and help my grandmother pick those tomatoes and then walk my little happy, you know, four year old butt back to the truck and put the basket down in the truck. I just kept on doing that because, and I'm, I'm a kid. I just want to help. But then to, to grow up and, and, uh, go pick oranges. That's that's something that I God, it's not easy. It is difficult to pick oranges. It's difficult to be bent over and picking tomatoes. So yeah, I, I was definitely the darkest one. And um knowing that now I'm I'm uh, I have an indigenous bloodline. I'm indigenous itself, so I'm decolonizing and knowing what that means. It it's uh it's interesting. But racism exists in our Latino culture, Latinx culture. So there are white white Latinos and there are, you know, Afro-Latinos who are African-American or Latino. They're indigenous Latinos. They're, they're everywhere. And 
yes, they're definitely we are definitely treated differently than the lighter skin Latinos. And um, that's something I've experienced a lot, even in my my own culture. But we we do need to tackle the racial inequality, the racism, the income inequality, and I, I support the democratic socialist platform. I support that. I don't believe in this capitalist, vulture capitalist platform. It's disgusting. It's detrimental. And they capitalize on any little divide by creating a divide, creating diversity, checking off those boxes. When they say, what race or ethnicity are you? I put other, and then I fill in the blank, human. Why the fuck do I need to be a color to, to matter or not matter? That's what I did on the last census. <laughs> <laughs> Like, why do I need to identify myself as a specific ethnicity or color? Why can't yeah. I just be human? Yeah. No, girl, I'm with we you. Ourselves, we, we ourselves check into those boxes. Mm-hmm. We put ourselves in those boxes mm-hmm. because we want to identify differently because maybe we'll matter more or we'll get more out of it or less out of it. You know, we can just check off the fact that we're human. Right. It cracked me up yesterday during She the People when... That's all works for everyone on this planet. You get that margin out allowed. Like, that's what my mind went to. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, like, he was talking about immigration reform, and, and he said, everyone on this planet. My mind said, Martians, you're not allowed. You're not. That's what Oh my God, you're so funny. That's not what she said. That's what I thought. Right? That's what she said. Um, let's talk about that actually for a second. So you attended the, with, um, what's the name of it again? She the People. Sorry. She the People Presidential Forum. Right. So you attended the She the People Presidential uh, Forum yesterday. I believe it was in Houston. Uh, there, So there were rumors floating around on Twitter that Bernie got booed at one point. Uh, so you were present. What was the story there? I was present. I was on the, at the balcony level mm-hmm. and the booze came from the bottom, like where, where the, the main area is at. The overflow went to the top. Um, I don't know what the booze were for, were for necessarily, but I think it came around the time when Sanders was asked, how are you, why should people, women of color vote for you? And someone said, he doesn't know. <laughs> I'm like, that's a, that's a tough question. It's a loaded question because one, it, it's my belief that he's not out there to, to get specific votes. He wants every vote, every vote. I get that it's important for, for women of color to vote. It's important for me as a woman of color to vote. But for me, I inter- I understand the intersectionality of it all. But that question was posed to everyone. And the response from Beto O'Rourke and Bernie Sanders were eerily similar. And Beto did not get booed. He did Why not get I booed. Not shocked? <laughs> I, I don't know. Wow. I don't know. I was like, Bernie, you got this. You right. definitely got this. But whenever he gave his response, he was proposing a general response because he wants everyone to vote. Yeah. But they wanted to know specifically, how are you going to convince women of color to vote for you? The platform is inclusive. The platform addresses intersectionality. The platform itself, mm-hmm. his message addresses yeah. everyone. Exactly. So he gave his stump speech that he typically gives to earn everyone's vote. 
but they wanted to know specifically what are you going to do for women of color. <laughs> and, well, so, um, but here's the thing, Seema, that I never understand about that is, is income inequality, the severe income inequality in this country, it, it, white men aren't the ones that are affected by that. So when he addresses things like income inequality, those policies by default benefit women of color more than they benefit yeah. white males. So I just, I think, uh, I think it's just more of this gotcha stuff from the establishment who are scared the crap out of mm -hmm. a, a democratic socialist, that that is a threat, workers' right. rights, that, that is a threat to their corporatism at the end of the day. And uh, I'm pretty sure that a lot of that stuff is simply astroturfing. I think the CNN town hall is another example of that. They asked Bernie some exceedingly loaded questions and went pretty softball on the other candidates. And, um, yep. you know, let's talk about the incarceration answer that he gave at the CNN town hall. I agree with him, actually, and I don't think that should be a radical statement. We are at base supposed to be a democracy, and part of being a democracy is that you don't limit voters' rights. And so when he said that he thinks incarcerated people should be allowed to vote, that didn't bother me whatsoever. I was like, well, yeah, that sort of seems natural to me. I mean, and you only have to look at the entire incarceration system in this country to realize what, why that's the case. There are people that are convicted of crimes that are innocent. There are people sitting in prison that can't post bail that haven't been even put in trial yet. There are folks that are uh, people of color that have been prosecuted simply because they are people of color, where they have either been framed for the crime or have received much harsher sentencing you know, I mean, we can go through all the problems. They're, they're really clear. And I would say the other side of that equation is that currently there are plenty of criminals who have never been prosecuted or walking around free in this country that fucking vote all the fucking time. So, yeah, well, and many of them are politicians. Exactly. Yep. So, uh, well, I, what are your thoughts on that? I, um, well, I, I myself thought it was a perfect response. That yes, incarcerated people should be allowed to vote. You know what? Um, people do know this that our taxpayer money pays for these prisons to keep them there so they can pay their debt to society. Yes, and they're already paying their debt to society. Exactly. Right. So exactly. why I mean, are we else? not allowing them to vote? They're still human. Seema, you know what else? They use the prison populations uh, in their House of Representatives populations and districting. They use those folks. Those those numbers are counted. So if they're counted for well, that, uh, why? Well, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Also remember that the, the, the people that are in prison are being used for corporate profit to yeah. make their materials, Absolutely. such as Victoria's little little secret. Secret, yep. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Victoria's Secret <laughs> uses the prison industrial complex to manufacture their bras. That's right. Think about that next time you purchase one. Six cents an hour. Uh, or anyone purchases one. Yeah. Yes. So they're already being used as slave labor. They are yeah. um, Absolutely. being suppressed. And we know that African-American people of color are being incarcerated at a greater rate than, you know, people that are white who commit the same crimes. Mm-hmm but they're not convicted or they're not incarcerated or they get off with a slap on the wrist mm -hmm. and go on, go on with your life. In Texas um, last year, there was a woman who was convicted of voting while she was on probation. And she is now spending, I believe it is seven years in prison. You've got to be kidding me. And I'm not because she, no, she was not allowed to vote. She was on probation. Wow. She's out of jail, you know? So she, 
Wow. She is not allowed to vote, and somebody noticed, noticed that, flagged them, and now she's in prison. That's insane. So, yes, there's a reason why people are outraged that, oh, my God, how dare we let people that are in prison vote? One, they're still United States citizens. That's right. They still have rights. That's right. That wasn't, you know, they, they're not absolved from their rights because they go to prison, because of an injustice system that put them there. Um. Yeah. I do believe that they're allowed to vote, and I'll even take it a step further. Take it a way, you know, huge step further is allowing undocumented parents of United States citizen children to vote. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is that there's so many roundups of immigration and people, you know, parents not coming home because they got deported at the child pickup line at school. Mm-hmm. Their kids are United States citizens and they're undocumented. Right. These kids no longer have parents because they've been deported. I believe in extending the right for the parents to vote so that they can advocate for their kids and what happens with them, how, See, how to cast a vote or when to cast a I'm vote, and it affects further. them personally. Seema, I'm going to go further. Yeah. I'm saying these people should just be made citizens. And that's the end of the story. I'm not opposed to that. Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> I'm not opposed to that at all. <laughs> It's ridiculous that we haven't the, given them amnesty. I don't know why that's such a dirty word. Honestly, I really don't. Well, the the, the gotcha question would be, well, how are you going to do that? And that's like, why not just do it? Just they already it. work here. They yeah. live here. They 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 pay taxes. Exactly. Why not just you pay taxes automatically? You're a citizen. I agree. You pay taxes in in income. Uh, you pay taxes in sales. You know, right. you pay taxes, you contribute to society, you know, you've lived here for a month and you plan on being here and you want to be a citizen That's right. and just be one, right. grant you that ability to do that. Yeah, I agree. I don't you know, understand the only why reason, it has to be so hard. Well, because these are racially motivated laws. They really are. Because of course. the economic argument is just involves too much cognitive dissonance. Which is really, you know, that's the strange part that I always um, point out to Republicans is, you know, they're supposed to be pro-economic growth, pro-this, pro-that, yet then they turn around and they think we shouldn't give these folks amnesty. And I'm like, well, you're talking out, out both sides of your mouth now. You want the cheaper labor. You want the economic growth that comes from that labor, yet... Then you want to turn around and say, well, no, we have to deport them. Well, who's going to take these jobs? Who's going to drive that economic growth? It's not going to come from poor white folks. That's just a bankrupt argument, and they know it is. So it's racially motivated. I have never seen a white person. I've never seen a white person work the field. Neither have I. Ever. Never. <laughs> exactly. I mean, every time someone says that to me, I just give them side eye. You know, we have a lot of migrant workers here in California, obviously. And, you know, yeah. that's been a real struggle here in the state. Getting those folks to be treated properly has been a struggle for decades. Um, we finally, uh, I know that here in District 34, we've had a lot of um, Hispanic leadership fighting that cause for decades now. And they're starting to make more headway. And I've been following that. Uh, but there's still a long way to go. And, and I feel like for all the gains that have made up through the early 2000s, a lot of those have gone away in the last, um, towards the end of the Obama administration beginning and entirely through Trump's administration for all of these reasons. Like they've just undone, legislatively speaking, they've just undone so many things. Like all that stuff that was so hard fought 
gone in the blink of an eye. You know, all it takes is the signature of an asshole, you know, and the law is overturned. It's replaced with something else. So, Mm -hmm. um, okay, that's depressing. (laughs) Well, no, it's depressing, but it's a necessary conversation that we have to have because there's a lot of uh, young voters or new voters that haven't voted or haven't voted in a long time that um, maybe just said, I don't want to deal with this. And now coming back and said, yeah, we want to be part of this political revolution and own our power, take back our power. Yeah. And they they should be and they want to be informed. And this is a way to do it. This is a platform to do it in. Oh, indeed. it's good to to know this. It is, even though it's it's just depressing, though, because when you see how how many years an activist fights, fights to get a law on the docket and then to have it undone, it's just a really painful mm-hmm. thing to see because to get that turned around again is going to take, you know, several more years of fighting. It's um, frustrating. I wanted to actually also ask you about, because I think this is a similar conversation, is the indigenous rights. Um, this is on your platform, and I think it's a really important part of your platform. Our Native American population has been screwed over time and time again by the federal government and treated very poorly. I mean, we could look at you know, one of the uh, big issues that came about in the last decade was the oil payments that were supposed to come from the land bureau that were not being handled properly. And that was a huge fight to get the land bureau to fix that stuff. And honestly, when you still look at it, it's still a mess. I think that they're still not giving, given enough money for what is being taken off their land uh, by these uh, fossil fuel corporations. But you're one of the few candidates that I've seen that's willing to address this cause. And I was um, happy to see that this was part of your platform. So talk with me a little bit about what uh, details are in your platform in regards to Indigenous rights and what kinds of things are you looking to to do to pursue justice for Native Americans? One important thing that you mentioned there is that they're not being paid enough for what's being taken from them. And the key word is it's being taken. And, and, uh, they have already, you know, the colonizers that came to this country took something from them. One, it took life, took land, it took culture, it took children and used them as slaves in their own homes. And they continue to take, take, take. I don't think there could ever be a paycheck big enough to compensate for what has been taken ever. So... And, and we, we can talk about this, you know, reparation conversation all year long. And there it, there will never be enough money to compensate for the devastation, the atrocities that were committed, the genocide that was committed on this land and other countries to bring people here for the benefit of the white man, for the benefit of their greed, for the benefit of their comfort. So that's one. But for indigenous rights is honoring the cities, giving them back their sovereignty, giving them back their sovereignty to choose what to do on their land that belongs to them, putting them in a position of, of, of authority in a cabinet in the White House, something that, you know, representation in a way that they, they are being represented and the issues are being addressed that they are not the last ones to call or, or beg for a seat at the table. We, we don't need any more begging. They, they've, they've suffered enough. We, we've suffered enough. Right to vote. There are so many women that are, that are disappearing, indigenous women that are disappearing, and there's no uprise. There's no outrage. 
of the indigenous women that are being raped and murdered and disappeared on tribal lands. And this is in direct correlation with the fossil fuel industry that is invading their land, that is digging up ancestral graves to put their pipelines. And these women happen to be missing in those general areas. So that needs to be addressed. I agree. Um, You know, I, I have really strong thoughts on this situation. I, it's really clear to me that for decades now, what's transpired has transpired to benefit private fossil fuel companies. I'm, I'm really disturbed by how poorly the federal government has not only not handled it, completely ignored the problem and intentionally tried to cover up and disappear the problem. And when Obama finally signed, um, I can't remember the name of the bill, but the one that was supposed to get the Bureau of Land Management to fix the accounting issues with the oil payments, et cetera, even that wasn't anywhere near close enough to what should have been done. But just getting that far was a fight that took, you know, over 15 years, which is fucking ridiculous. We stole we stole land from these folks. We raped, we killed. And now all of these, you know, all of these years later, they still haven't been given any form of justice for that. To continue to allow these fossil fuel companies, these private corporations to pillage their way through these tribal lands on top of it is just so fucking gross. I can't wrap my head around it. Um, I think what happened at Dapple is. I have no words for how disgusted I am by that. You know, why is this happening and where is the outrage? I see a lot of folks willing to get outraged over lots of other things that seem less pressing as far as civil rights are concerned. And I don't understand why this this one subject always ends up at the bottom of the pile, it seems. Well, it's because, again, you mentioned it earlier, it's racism. It's because they're people of color. And it's because something is owed to them because there's a, a, a huge black or blood-stained constitution on which it was written and built upon yeah. with genocide. And to admit any kind of, of wrongdoing kind of, um, I guess, what do you call it, nullifies the constitution. <laughs> but it gives, yeah. gives indigenous people rights to take back their land. Well, you know. Mm-hmm. One, there is there are treaties that have not been honored. Yeah, and that needs to be honored. That that needs to be said and needs to be put in place. A president and a house and a senate who will honor those treaties. And yeah. uh, but neither party one, seems to want to do that. I mean, this is a problem with both parties. This is a bipartisan thing. I don't see the Democratic Party even closely doing anything for these folks. If, if anything, they've been part of and the problem. I don't problem. think they ever will. Yeah. I don't think they ever will. That, that's the problem. But, and that, that's part of the, the old guard of the, the Democratic Party and the, the, the Republican Party and itself what they do and, and how they operate. Mm-hmm. We do need representation. We, and I'm glad that there are indigenous women who are in Congress. Finally. But that's Finally. not enough. We need more people in yeah. Congress. We need more people that are um, in the presidential cabinet that, that know what to do, know who, how to address these issues mm-hmm. and are people who have been dedicated to fighting this fight. We don't, and I, I, you know, I know this is going to sound bad, but it needs to be said. Sometimes 
people of color need to be in these positions instead of having white wives speak for us because they don't live like we did. Right. They don't go through the same struggle. So in order to represent the issues that are going on there, it needs to be someone who is indigenous. Mm-hmm. And we need to have white allies, or as we like to say here, white accomplices mm-hmm. to get us there. That's what we need. Yeah, I don't um, disagree. I'd like to see Bernie Sanders' campaign take this issue up. I'd like to see him maybe look at appointing uh, a Native American in a position of, of um, advising him on this matter. It would be nice to see that. Absolutely. I would like to see, you know, whether it's the HUD or if it's the EPA or um, Health and Human Services part of the administration you know, have them be the political light of something. 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 Yeah, something. Someone. Something needs to be done. Yeah. I just, you know, it's it's insane that... <sighs> it's insane that this yeah. is, like, even a conversation at, at, in 2019, but it absolutely is. Um, so what are the well, perks... You know, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. I was going to say, um, people fight in this fight for, for years for many different reasons, but overall it's for justice. We right. see people pour their entire lives into causes and issues only to see it, one, either not not uh, get their their expectation or, you know, it fails. Mm-hmm. One thing that is consistent that I've known, even though Dr. King was murdered, was assassinated, he died, but his, his campaign, his platform, his message continues. Yeah. So we do need to continue our message through teaching fellow revolutionaries, up-and-coming generations of revolutionaries, to continue this fight because it's never going to be over. We're always going to be fighting. Yeah. Our justice is never going to be handed to us. We have to go in there, demand it. We have to take it like they took something yeah. from us, yeah. like they took our land, like they took our rights. It's not going to be handed to us. So with that, you know, I don't know what your next question was, but go ahead. Yeah, no, but I think you're right. We need to demand it and take it because... We're not getting it the other way by playing nice, that's for sure. And um, and by we, I mean revolutionaries. Uh, so I wanted to talk, um, lastly, I wanted to talk about fair trade over free trade because I think free trade, number one, is a misnomer. Free trade isn't isn't even remotely free. It's uh, NAFTA, for example. These are, these are con, uh, contracts, contracts that are absolutely rigged towards the capital. And against the workers, there's no environmental protections. There's no labor protections. We can go down the list. And NAFTA in particular has been a disaster for workers on both sides of the border, not just in the United States. So then we have the newer version of NAFTA, the USMCA, that is only a slight improvement. Um, so what would you like to see happen with our fair trade agreements? If, if um, you get elected to the Senate, what would be one of the things that you would work on getting achieved? If I get elected to United States Senate to unseat John Cornyn and introduce legislation, I would completely do away with the fair tr- or free trade agreement and put a fair trade agreement that is mutually beneficial to both countries or three countries. Because in this case, it would be uh, Mexico and Canada and the United States. I would do away with the TPP altogether. Fuck the TPP. That was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was completely written in the dark, and it didn't come to light until you know an organization, a, a news, not a news organization, but I guess a news outlet like WikiLeaks brought it to light. Thank you, WikiLeaks. <laughs> that's that's real journalism right there. 
Um, Girl, don't you know it? I'm a big fan of WikiLeaks. I agree. <laughs> expose well, the you know, truth. that's a topic for a different day, but when exactly. they expose the truth. Yeah. All kinds of people I mean, get and they, they are, <laughs> Exactly. That's the problem. Dirty secrets are revealed, and now we want to incarcerate and, and you know, take people yeah. hostage and extradite them to the United States, and which is completely unconstitutional yeah. and it violates international law. Oh, yeah. Anywho. Anywho. <laughs> um, <laughs> fair trade agreement would include environmental protections, the right to unionize, the um, raising the, the living wage, the raising the, the working conditions in the living standards of people in this country, mm-hmm. whether it be Mexico or Canada. We need regulations set in place for both countries so that one, we can trade materials and trade, you know, goods, but also that people on both sides are getting paid a living wage so that they can also buy goods from each other in different countries. How else are we going to benefit and and raise our, our standard of living, standard of care if we can't ourselves you know, make enough money to buy the goods that we make ourselves. And that seems insane. Right now, there is a, you know, we live in a consumer-driven society. We also live in a capitalist economy. And the capitalists will always make it money, no matter what, because that's the system and it's rigged, and it's rigged to benefit them. So they outsource our jobs. Outsource our jobs to countries that pay pennies on the dollar, you know, literally pennies, maybe maybe a dollar. In Mexico, it's like $3 a week to to make products that cost us, let's say, for example, the Dollar Tree, cost a dollar, right? But that stuff is made in countries where they're literally slaves in sweatshops making stuff so they can sell it here. And because of the capitalist system, they're being paid very little where... They could, if the job can be outsourced to another country if you pay them a living wage, then they themselves don't have to work in a sweatshop. Their living conditions are better. Their working conditions are better. There is environmental protection, which means all this mass production is not causing pollution because we're regulating our environment to make sure that these companies are not polluting at the same time that they're making this product that they're selling in the United States for literally a dollar. And that's just one example of the Dollar Tree. And these materials are made, again, with toxic chemicals. They're made with materials that break easily. So, again, our our dollar doesn't buy good quality made material because the whole point of the capitalist system is for them to make as much money on low-quality material made made by people who are getting paid a very low wage. Now, if, if we... If we make it with good material and if we make it with, you know, people, if we pay people who make this a living wage, it's something that's sustainable for them as a people so that they can get out of their situation, so that they can pay for things from the United States that are made in the States, but also that we can stop, I don't know, how do you say this, making products that are toxic to the environment that are detrimental to economies, that are detrimental to the United States economy. And, you know, both countries are, are mutually, or all countries are mutually, um, will mutually benefit from this. 
when one country is able to buy our products and our country is able to buy their products, we are benefiting on so many levels. So it just makes sense for it to be fair instead of free because free is just, oh, we won't pay taxes. We'll do what we want. We'll pollute. We'll pay you whatever we want. No, you're right, Seema. Free trade benefits the capitalists that are funding the endeavors, not anybody else. And part of that conversation is the consumerism that drives that. I think people are, you're right, we're told like, buy this, buy this. You're constantly inundated with these messages about things that you must acquire to be happy. And um, then people buy them and they're not happy. So then they buy more. But I think the reverse side of that is something you touched on that I think is also salient. And that is that because our economy is consumer driven, the consumption is necessary for both growth and sustainability of the economy. But right now we're at it. We're getting this is where uh, the whole idea of late stage capitalism comes into play. We're at that point now where there's such severe income inequality when you have over 80 percent of the new wealth that's being created year after year going to the one percent. I mean, not even the top 10 percent, the one percent. It's not sustainable. It's not tenable because the expendable income is no longer there in the hands of the majority of consumers to buy the goods. So I don't know how this doesn't collapse in and of itself. I mean, it's really, we're really headed to a a post capitalist economy. Um, I think that's pretty clear at this point. And what that looks like is, is really the struggle that we're having right now in politics. So um, I'm hoping I would like to see, and you know, here's another thing that there's a mistake that folks make and they believe that, if we say free market, that we mean capitalism, which is entirely not true. You know, Adam Smith is probably one of the most misaligned philosophers on the planet because he's often, especially by the right wing, I should mention, he's often called the father of capitalism, but he's not the father of capitalism. Adam Smith was an 18th century writer. Capitalism came a century later. So, and, you know, Adam Smith talks about wealth um, in terms of labor. So, you know, he he was very much a believer in labor rights and a believer that labor is entitled to their fair share of uh, the benefit, the profits of production. So, and of course, he wouldn't use the word profit, but you get what I'm saying. Um, I digress, philosopher. You get what I'm saying. So. Yeah, totally. No, you're, you, that was a great answer. <laughs> Actually, see, I should mention that was one of the better answers I've had on that question. Um, not all, not all uh, candidate, political candidates entirely understand economics. Um, so, well, yeah. And quite honest, I've never, I've never formally studied economics. You, but you got but, the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I understand the problem and understanding exactly. the solution is, is completely different, but um, 100%. We, we, we need to move away from this consumer-driven society. We need a more sustainable yeah, economy, sustainable environment. I agree. Girl, we and need the it for the environment, to too. Through. If we kill the planet, the, yes. the conversation is not even worth having. And that's pretty much where we're at. We we need to change. We need to. And it, it is like, dying. We don't, we don't even. We don't even need to plan a funeral. We'll just wait 12 exactly. years. Exactly. We'll, we'll be underwater. <laughs> no yeah. joke. It's bad. Um, so. Yeah. I I think um, I want to actually make sure that folks know if they want to support. So you're running for 2020 again. I did not mention that at the opening. I think that's important to mention now, which I think is great. So I want to make sure that folks have your contact for if they want to make a donation to your campaign. Uh, where's the best place for them to do that? Uh, they can make it on SEMAForTexas.com. 
S-E-M-A-F-O-R-T-E-X-A-S.com. You can go through Ask Blue or CrowdPax, type in my name, Sima Hernandez, and it'll populate um, the campaigns that are active in accepting donations. Mm-hmm. We are not doing super PACs. We're okay. not accepting super PACs either. <laughs> we are not accepting money from corporations. Yeah. And we are not bundling donations. Amen. That's super important is not to, not to work with bundlers. I agree. Um, what we want to do is continue to have a grassroots campaign, whether through donations and volunteers. Um, that's what we need. We need both donations and volunteers. Awesome. We will be taking off our campaign soon. Okay. Um, I've been busy right now with city council and school district elections and helping block walking for a lot of the candidates here because I can't fully focus on the federal elections until I know home is okay. Yeah. And if home is good, then I can focus on running for federal, winning federal and communicating with local officials Mm -hmm. on how we get this done on all levels of government. True. The infrastructure. That's smart. No, that's very smart. You need the local infrastructure. You can't be successful on house of cards. That's right. Literally, you need, you need yep. a good foundation and infrastructure smart. to maintain a household. Smart. <laughs> Very smart. Um, and Thank then, which, I know you've got more than one Twitter because I follow all of them. Um, which, um, <laughs> true, which, uh, which Twitter handle should folks follow you at? Uh, well, they can follow SEMA for, for Texas or they can follow SEMA under, I'm sorry, at underscore SEMA Hernandez underscore. Amen. If you just literally type SEMA, like those two will pop up. Okay. And um, uh, I've built up quite a following on, on Twitter. Facebook yeah. is just, you know, it, it's getting up there, but I'm more active on Twitter than I am on Facebook, so I need to change that. And I think I will start doing live streams on Facebook and um, link Periscope? it up to Twitter. That way people can see. I hate Facebook. Well, Periscope is <laughs> Well, I don't like Facebook. <laughs> I you know, the Zuckerberg are always fine. So I try to stay on Twitter. Twitter is kind of buffering, but of course, it depends on my internet connection. Yeah. So I hear you. whenever I do a live stream, I will try to do it on Periscope. Oh, good. And just just link it over to Twitter. I'm there sorry. You yeah, go. Periscope, Twitter, and then Facebook. Facebook. Yeah, I mean, can't you post a Periscope? Because I have not done this. I'm wondering now. I think you can probably post a Periscope broadcast on Facebook, right? I just think um, I've got issues with Facebook. So I feel you when you say you don't. I have a Facebook account, but I'm absolutely never on there. Mm, Yeah, I just don't like, you know, the Zuckerberg's mining for information just to target ads at us and selling our our data for profit. Absolutely. I, I think Facebook and Google yeah. are not to be trusted. They've shown us who they are. So that's sort of how I feel about it as well. Well, they've shown us who we are, but we've shown them who we are. So <laughs> yes. it all depends on how much information we put out there of ourselves. This is why I love you. <laughs> that, that line right there. <laughs> we've shown them who we are. You're right, girl. <laughs>